I know that you're accustomed to hearing an exposition of a verse or a passage of Scripture because Adam, like me, typically teaches verse by verse through books of the Bible. And since I'm confident that you are faithfully being fed a healthy diet of biblical preaching, this morning I want to give you a Twinkie to eat. That's what I call topical sermons, okay? They're Twinkies. Every once in a while, you can throw one in there, and hopefully it doesn't throw off your diet, right? What's the 80-20 rule, right? As long as you eat good 80% of the time, you can have a Twinkie from now and, now and again. But I want to get you to muse with me uh, about a fascinating topic that I've been musing about ever since I stumbled across a footnote in a book that I was reading. It's been said that books don't change your lives sentences change your life. And sometimes even a footnote can change your life. When I first read this particular footnote, it it honestly jolted me. Uh, At the same time, it intrigued me enough to want to get a hold of that book that it referenced and, and to read it for myself. The footnote simply said this, see John Newton, the advantages of remaining sin. Now, obviously, I was familiar with John Newton, the slave trader who experienced a dramatic conversion uh, to Christ back in the 1700s, became a beloved pastor, beloved hymn writer. We've all sung his most famous hymn, Amazing Grace. Uh, Newton was a prolific hymn writer. Uh, But a lesser known fact is that he wrote hundreds of pastoral letters in which he provided practical instruction and wise counsel and tender reproof and warm comfort to family members and friends. And his biographers concur that this was Newton's special gift, and he was highly regarded as the letter writer par excellence of the evangelical revival. One of his um, biographers, J.I. Packer, said that Newton was perhaps the greatest pastoral letter writer of all time. And there are several collections of of, uh, Newton's letters in print, but I was able to track down the the letter that referenced, uh, or that was referenced in that footnote, which he wrote to an English aristocrat who was apparently struggling with sorrow and shame over his indwelling or remaining sin. And so I want to read for you just a couple of excerpts from that letter to to prime your mind, to prime your heart as we consider this this radical and potentially risky concept together. And so let me just start with the last sentence where he says it. He says, he concludes all, all his letter with this sentence. He says, these are some of the advantages and good fruits which the Lord enables us to obtain from that bitter root and indwelling sin. Now, your first thought might be the same one I had when I first read that footnote. Is that really true? Are there advantages or benefits to to the sin that remains in our lives as believers, in my life as a believer? Now, now let me read for you the, the first few sentences of that letter. He addresses this aristocrat as the Lord. He says, my Lord, my last two letters turned upon a mournful subject, the depravity of the heart, which impedes us when we go when we would do good and pollutes our best intended services with evil. 
We have cause upon this account to go softly all our days, yet we need not sorrow as those who have no hope. The Lord has provided his people relief under these complaints and teaches us to draw improvement from them. And this is the key line here. He says, if the evils we feel were not capable of being overruled for good, God would not permit them to remain in us. This we may infer from his hatred to sin and the love which he bears to his people. And I'm immediately reminded of Joseph's words in Genesis 50, 20, where he was extolling God for providentially overruling the sinful decisions and actions of his brothers. When he said what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And so Newton based his, his logic about the advantages of remaining sin on the fact that God hates sin and he loves us. In other words, if we know that God hates sin and he loves us, then he must have a purpose or purposes for sin to remain in us. And so Newton went on to unpack those purposes in this letter, which he viewed as advantages that provide comfort and, and hope to believers like us who are in the midst of our ongoing, often frustrating and discouraging fight with indwelling or remaining sin. Paul famously expressed his frustration with indwelling sin, with remaining sin in the seventh chapter of of, of his letter to the Christians in Rome. You may turn there if you'd like, Romans chapter seven. I will be using the Bible. We just won't be uh, landing in one place. We'll be jumping around to different passages this morning. But Romans chapter seven, a very familiar text, verse 14, Paul says this, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh sold into bondage to sin. For, I am, for what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want to do, uh, I do not do, but the, I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good, for I joyfully concur with the law of God and the inner man, but I say a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so through his death, his resurrection, Jesus defeated the power of sin and delivered us from the penalty of sin, and one day he will free us from the very presence of sin when he returns or, or calls us home to be with him in heaven. But in the meantime, God, for his own sovereign purposes, has ordained that we be gradually or progressively or increasingly set apart from sin 
As we flee from it, as we fight to subdue it and mortify it in order to become more and more like Christ. And so the process of sanctification works by degrees or by stages. And that's why Paul went on in the next chapter, chapter 8, to explain how we are to put to death those sinful desires and those habits that remain in us with eager anticipation of that glorious day when our sin-cursed bodies will be redeemed and we will be sinless forever. And then he reassures us at the end of Romans chapter 8 that God works all things together for what? For good, which includes, all things includes our remaining sin. And that nothing, he goes on to say, nothing can ever separate us from God's love for us in Christ. And so if we know these things to be true, and they are true, then the fact that God didn't take us to heaven the moment we got saved, or at least didn't make us instantly perfect, which he could have if he wanted to, but instead he left us here on this earth to continue to struggle with sin our entire lives that it must in some way bring him glory and accomplish good in our lives. The question is, how is God glorified and what good comes from our daily struggle with remaining sin? I mean, what, what advantages, what, what benefits could there possibly be from what seems like this, this never-ending cycle of, of being tempted to sin and then sinning and then confessing our sin and receiving forgiveness for our sin and then repenting of our sin and then enjoying a, a season of victory and rest from our sin and, and just when we think that we've conquered that, that sin once and for all, it comes raging back to life with greater strength and fury than ever before and then we blow it again. How is God glorified in that? What good is that accomplishing in our lives? Well, before we attempt to answer that, I need to give a disclaimer. <laughs> because the, the word or the words advantages or, or what I'm choosing to call it benefits, uh, they're slippery words when talking about our sin. Can you even use those those words, advantages and benefits in the same sentence with sin. And so I'm acknowledging here at the outset that this is a delicate subject that must be handled with great care. Newton in that letter, I think could be likened to a skilled pharmacist who was carefully mixing poisons that could kill us to concoct a medicine or a vaccine that God could use to soothe our souls as we continue to battle against the sin that remains in us. So in other words, we're, we're playing with poison this morning. And my concern is if this, if this tricky topic is, is miscommunicated or, or misconstrued in any way, it could lead to, to incorrect conclusions which could, could result in, in harmful consequences to your souls. And so rather than being helpful this morning, I would have ended up being hurtful in an attempt to, to encourage you in the midst of your uh, struggle with remaining sin, somehow you would feel encouraged to sin. 
And obviously I and Newton in no way are advocating sin or advising us to sin so we can experience the, the, and enjoy the benefits or the advantages of, of, of remaining sin. Any advantages or benefits of remaining sin should never be viewed as an excuse for sinning. And we mustn't forget Paul's warning to the Romans in Romans chapter 6 after exalting the, 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 uh, the abounding grace of God, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Paul said in Romans chapter 6, verse 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? In other words, if, if the more I sin, the more God pours out his grace on my life, so should I just keep sinning so I get to experience more of God's grace? What did he say? May it never be. How shall we who die to sin still live in it? Sin is our mortal enemy. It, it killed our Savior. It, it wants to kill us. And killing it is the daily work of the Spirit in our lives. Paul Tripp and his excellent uh, systematic theology called Do You Believe? If you've not had a chance to acquire that and, and, and work through that, it's a great resource. I would highly commend it, Do You Believe? Um, he says this in the section on sin. He said, quote, sin is a deceitful, malevolent, and seductive killer still lurking in the corners of your heart. Sin is always harmful, always destructive, and never good. Sin is never something that you should find a way to live with. Sin is never an acceptable occupant in the home that is your heart. Sin must be destroyed. It must be eradicated. It must be put to death. There is no acceptable plan B. The goal of God's sanctifying grace is the final death of the sin that remains in us, end quote. And so I read that because I want us to be very clear this morning in our minds that we should never, ever be comfortable with our sin or complacent about our sin. By following the, the faulty logic that it's okay to sin since God will ultimately use it for his good glory and our good in the end. Newton was a, a wise, careful shepherd and he was not promoting any such wrong thinking but, but in fact provided many exhortations throughout his life and ministry for believers to remain vigilant in their fight against sin. But he was simply following in the footsteps of the faithful Puritan pastors of the previous generation who had articulated something similar in the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is a, a brilliantly written and, and biblically based doctrinal statement and considered by many to be the best explanation of systematic theology ever framed by uh, the Christian church. And it contains 33 chapters, and the fifth chapter covers the subject of God's providence. And it clearly states that, that sin proceeds from the creature and not from God, because God is holy and righteous and neither is nor can be the author or the approver of sin, and yet in his almighty power, his unsearchable wisdom and infinite goodness, he is able to use sin for his own holy ends. And listen to this quote. This is the Westminster Confession of Faith. 
The most wise, righteous, and gracious God doth oftentimes leave for a season his own children to manifold temptations and the corruption of their own hearts, to chastise them for their former sins, or to discover unto them the hidden strength of corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts, that they may be humbled and to raise them to a more close and constant dependence for their support upon himself and to make them more watchful against all future occasions of sin and for sundry other just and holy ends. Now keep in mind, the men who wrote that statement weren't just cold analytical theologians who were merely focused on achieving doctrinal precision. They were pastors They were preachers, and they were focused on providing biblical counsel and and comfort for for the people of God, those that God had entrusted to their care, particularly in regards to how they should view their ongoing struggle with remaining sin. And so they wanted their people to know that sin does not fall outside the providential control of God, and there are times when rather than leading us out of temptation... God leaves us in tempting situations and allows us to battle with sin and even fall into sin. And rather than delivering us from the evil one, as we so often pray, he permits Satan to attack us. And this all serves his wise, righteous, and gracious purposes for our lives. Job would be the classic example that that God permitted Satan, right, to test Job. Jesus was led into the wilderness by the Spirit, by the Holy Spirit. It says that in Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, that it was the Spirit of God who led him into the wilderness, not to tempt him, right? We know that James says that God does not tempt anyone, right? But it was the Spirit who was a part of that process. And then, of course, Luke 22, uh, where... Uh, Jesus told Peter that Satan had desired to sift him as wheat, right? This is uh, Luke chapter 22, verse 31. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. And I'm sure Peter was thinking, well, you told him no, right? He says, but I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, and once you have been turned, once you have turned again, he said, strengthen your brothers. So again, just going back to that statement in the Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, it, it suggests five purposes for remaining sin and provides biblical examples for each of those. Uh, first, it says that it may chastise us for our former sins. Former sins, referring to sins that we've committed in the past that perhaps we've not been, have we not fully dealt with, uh, and, 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 and yet, so God has to discipline us to, to make us more holy as he is holy, Proverbs 3, 11, uh, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof for whom the Lord loves, he reproves even as a, a father corrects the son in whom he delights. I think of David in in, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 24, uh, verse 1, where it talks about him numbering the people, doing something that God forbid the kings from doing. 
2 Samuel 24, verse 1, Now again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and it incited David against them to say, Go number Israel and Judah. 1 Chronicles 21, 1 is the other side of the coin. It actually says that it was Satan who did that. Then Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. And so we don't have time to unpack all of that, okay? <laughs> Which, who was it, right? The point is that, that David sinned. And uh, it was uh, partly a, a judgment from the Lord. Uh, Hezekiah would be another example uh, in, in 2 Chronicles chapter 32. Uh, as you know, Hezekiah, uh, on, on one level, a very faithful king, and God used him mightily, and God blessed him, and yet it went to his head, it seems. And at the end of his life, he became arrogant. And Second Corinthians, uh, Second Chronicles, excuse me, verse thirty-two, uh, chapter thirty-two, verse twenty-four. In those days, Hezekiah became mortally ill, and he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord spoke to him and gave him a sign. But Hezekiah gave no return for the benefit he received, because his heart was proud. Therefore, wrath came on him and on Judah and Jerusalem. Goes on in verse twenty-seven. Now Hezekiah had immense riches and honor, and he made for himself treasuries for silver, gold, precious stones, spices, shields, all kinds of uh, valuable articles, storehouses also for the produce of grain, and he made cities for himself and acquired flocks and herds. Verse 30, it was Hezekiah who stopped the upper outlet of the waters of Gihon, uh, Gihon and directed them to the west side of the city of David. Some of you I know have gone th- through Hezekiah's tunnel, right, in, in, in Israel, um, even in the matter of the envoys of the rulers of Babylon who sent to him to inquire of the wonder that had happened in the land, God left him alone only to test him that he might know all that was in his heart. So the Lord may be chastising us for our former sins. Secondly, it says it may, it may be to discover unto us the hidden strength of corruption and deceitfulness of our hearts that we may be humbled. Jeremiah 17, 9 says the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? I think of the nation of Israel in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2. You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. He goes on to say in verse 15, he led you through the great and terrible wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water. He brought you water for you out of the rock of Flint. In the wilderness, he fed you manna which your fathers did not know that he might humble you, that he might test you to do good for you in the end. Another example would be Peter. Peter in Mark chapter 14, remember how arrogant he was when Jesus said, hey, by the way, all of you guys are going to fall away. And in Mark 14, verse 29, Peter said, even though all may fall away, yet I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you that, that ver- this very night before a rooster crows twice, you yourself will deny me three times. But Peter kept saying insistently, even if I have to die with you, I'll not deny you. And just a few hours later, As you know, he denied him three times and went out into the evening and wept bitterly. He was humbled. Thomas Watson, a Puritan, wrote uh, 
an article entitled, Indwelling Sin Pulls Down the Plumes of Remaining Pride. I think of, think of a peacock, a proud peacock, right? And they got the plumes all out, walking around, kind of, you know, walking around like a proud peacock. And this is what he said, man is a self-exalting creature, And if he has but anything of worth, he's ready to be puffed up. But when he comes to see his deficiencies and failings and how far, far short he comes of that holiness and perfection which God requires, it pulls down the plumes of his pride and lays them in the dust. He weeps over his inability. He blushes over his leprous spots. He says with Job, I abhor myself in dust and ashes. Thirdly, the Westminster Confession suggests that it may be to raise us to a more close and constant dependence for our support upon himself. In other words, we are more dependent on the Lord. Jeremiah chapter 24, verses 4 through 7 says this, and the word of the Lord came to me saying, thus says the Lord God of Israel, like these good figs, so I'll regard as good the captives of Judah whom I've sent out of this place into the land of the Chaldeans. And so they were, um, of course, as you know, they were taken captive by the Babylonians and taken into exile. He said, I will set my eyes on them for good and will bring them again to this land, and I will build them up and not overthrow them, and I will plant them and not pluck them up. I will give them a heart to know me, for I am the Lord, and they will be my people, and I will be their God, for they will return to me with their whole heart. Jeremiah 29, familiar passage, verse 11. Jeremiah 29, verse 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for the welfare and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. In other words, when, when you're in exile, right? When, when you are in Babylon, you are gonna be longing for my presence once again and you're gonna seek me with all your heart, something you weren't doing When everything was fine, you were living the cushy life in Jerusalem. The Apostle Paul, I guess, would be another good example. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me, and he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Paul was dependent on the Lord. Thomas Boston, another Puritan, wrote an article called Why the Lord Suffereth Sin to Remain in the Regenerate. He says, this gives the soul many errands to God. In other words, it gives us a reason to go to God. It stirs up in him to frequent exercise of prayer and calling on the name of the Lord. The soul feels the continual need of pardon and therefore must needs be much lying at God's footstool. When they grow remiss in their duty, the Lord sometimes for their awakening suffers them to fall into some sin or sins grievously wounding the conscience and so like a presumptuous self-willed child falling into the fire, they cry for and value the help of their father even more. 
Fourthly, it suggests that it, it, perhaps it may be to make us more watchful against the future occasions of sin. And if you remember when Peter was with, the, with James and John in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus said, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And what did they do? They didn't watch and pray. They fell asleep and they fell into temptation. And then years later, Peter wrote this in 1 Peter chapter 5. He says, close yourselves with humility towards one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Peter learned to be much more watchful and much more aware against future occasions of sin. Again, Thomas Boston said this, we live in a world where there are traps set before us and behind us and on each side to catch us. We walk amidst many snares, yet are ready to fall secure and careless and to let down our watch. It is not amiss then that we sometimes smart in order to our being kept awake. In other words, sometimes God has to remind us, hey, stay awake, stay watchful. And then finally, the fifth reason in the Westminster Confession here is that it may be for sundry other just and holy ends. Well, that just opens up, you know, a world of opportunity there of, of many other ends. For example, Asaph in Psalm 73, I love that struggle that Asaph was so transparent about that he was being foolish and that he was envying the wicked. Even though he was a child of God, why would you envy the enemies of God, and, and so God uh, caused him to, or, or allowed him to be in this situation where he was wrestling with this discontent and this, and this, um, and this envy uh, to draw him back to himself where he could say, whom have I in heaven but you, and on earth I desire nothing. So let me suggest now, so that was just for free. That was introduction, okay? That was just getting us to think about this. But just with the time that I have remaining here, I want to suggest some of these sundry other just and holy ends or advantages or benefits of remaining sin. And that's what you have before you in your outline. Those were uh, really just taken from the, the, the statement that that's, there's a, I have that quote, by the way, on the back of your notes, the Westminster Confession of Faith is down there. I know that's a chunky statement. It requires a lot of meditation and thought. You, I, I wanted you to have it there so you could meditate it on after today. But uh, that, that's, those were the reasons that they suggest. But let me suggest to you seven more reasons, which some of them are similar, but um, I think they're worthy enough to be restated. So number one, number one, remaining sin assures us that we're truly saved. Our struggle with remaining sin assures us that we are truly saved. And I think every true follower of Christ can relate to Paul's wrestling match with remaining sin that we just read in Romans chapter seven. And, and here was the Apostle Paul, perhaps the greatest Christian who ever lived, and yet he was humble and transparent about admitting that he still struggled with sin in his life. Well, let's not be a church full of people that act like we've all arrived. Every, every one of us walked in here 
struggling with some sinful thoughts, some sinful motives, maybe some sinful habit patterns. Uh, that's part of the Christian life. And you may have, have walked in here this morning discouraged by the fact that your battle with sin is, is so intense at times. And in fact, it might even seem to be getting worse, not better, which, which might have made you wonder, am I even saved? And by the way, that's the, the irony of the Christian life. That's kind of the paradox of the Christian life. The, the closer you get to Christ, the more sinful you feel like you are because you're getting closer and closer to the spotlight of his holiness. And if you're, if you're way back there in the corner, you know, uh, away out of the light, you don't necessarily see all the imperfections or the, the whatever's on your clothes. And as you get into the light, you're like, oh man, I got lots of stuff on me here. I didn't even see that. I didn't even know that, right? So sometimes it, it's, it, it doesn't make sense why I feel like I've, I, I'm, I'm closer to the Lord than I've ever, be, ever been in my life, but I feel more sinful than I've ever felt before. And see, this is, the, this is the dynamic. If there is no struggle, if there is no fight, if there is no war, then that might be an indication that you aren't saved. The fact that there is a spiritual battle raging inside of you, I think that's one of the greatest evidences that you're truly born again. Unbelievers are at peace with sin. They're okay with sin. Believers are at war with sin. They're not okay with sin. Unbelievers live in sin, whereas believers don't live in sin, but sin still lives in them. J.C. Ryle, in his classic book, Holiness, has a chapter called The Fight. He says this, quote, we may take comfort about our souls if we know anything of an inward fight and conflict. It is the invariable companion of genuine Christian holiness, do we find in our heart of hearts a spiritual struggle? Do we feel anything of the flesh warning against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh so that we cannot do the things we would? Are we conscious of, of two principles within us contending for mastery? Do we feel anything of war in our inward man? Well, let us thank God for it. It is a good sign. It is strongly probable evidence of the great work of sanctification. And if you are being sanctified, that means you have been, what, justified. Of course, Galatians 5, 16 and 70 talk, describes that, that battle, right, between the flesh and the spirit. I say to you, walk by the spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets itself, its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another so that you will, may not do the things that you please. First uh, Peter chapter 2 Verse 11, Peter writing to believers, he says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. That's just part of being a Christian. You got stuff waging against you all the time. It's a good sign, and it assures us that we're truly saved. Number two, I think our fight, our struggle with remaining sin keeps us from becoming self-righteous and enables us to empathize with our fellow sinners. It keeps us from becoming self-righteous and enables us to empathize with our fellow sinners. Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, there is certainly no righteous man on the earth who does good and never sins. 
Isaiah 64, 6, for all of us have become like one who is unclean and all of our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. And sadly, I think most of us tend to be like the Pharisee that Jesus described in Luke chapter 18. Verse 9, he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. In other words, those that look down their nose at other people, thinking that they're better than them or less sinful than they are. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector, and the Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I pay tithes of all that I get, but the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Matthew 7, verse 1, do not judge so that you will not be judged. Why do you look at the speck that's in your brother's eye? You don't notice the log in your own eye. Or how can you say to your brother, hey, let me take the speck out of your eye when you've got a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. My my point is this, when we are doing well spiritually and, and experiencing victory over sin in our lives, we may be tempted to look down on the struggles of others. And it comes out in thoughts or expressions like this. How could they do that? I would never do that. Don't let those thoughts ever come into your mind. Don't let those words ever come out of your mouth. Because you know the seed of every imaginable sin is in every one of our hearts. You could do that. John Newton in that letter said, whoever is truly humbled will be compassionate and tender to the infirmities of his fellow sinners. Knowing that if there is a difference, it is grace which has made that difference. And that he is the seeds of every evil in his own heart. And under all trials and afflictions, he will look to the hand of the Lord and lay his mouth in the dust, acknowledging that he suffers much less than his iniquities have deserved. Galatians 6.1, brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, each one looking to what? Yourself, lest you too be tempted. Paul, 1 Timothy chapter 1, considered himself the greatest sinner he knew. He was the worst sinner in his mind. And I think that should be how we view ourselves. And when you truly see yourself as the worst sinner in your marriage, then guess what? Your marriage problems are not your spouse's fault, they're your fault. <laughs> and if you see the, you're the worst sinner in in, in, in your church, then guess what? Whatever conflict might be happening at any given time in the life of the church is not somebody else's fault, it's your fault. And so it just makes you humble and it makes you empathetic with your fellow sinner that you can, you can sit on the ash heap with people rather than pointing a finger at them and judging them. How could you? You sit with them and say, listen, I may have not 
done that, but I've thought about it, and I could have, I mean, I could have easily done the same thing. Number three, I think our struggle with remaining sin shows us how wicked and weak we really are and how desperately dependent we need to be on God. It shows us how wicked and weak we really are and how desperately dependent we need to be on God. God uses our sinful thoughts and our words and our actions to show us the depth of our depravity and how powerless we are to fight sin on our own in order to strip us from self-confidence and and make us more dependent on him. Ian DeGood in his book on the armor of God said this, quote, nothing teaches us our utter dependence upon God more than our constant spiritual failures. If I make repeated resolutions to give up a certain sin and I fast and I pray and I still find myself giving into it, what else can I conclude but that that I am indeed the weakest of Christians? When I resolve over and over not to say the unkind and prideful words that repeatedly spring into my mind but still find myself hurting people and exalting myself regularly, what shall I say except wretched man that I am who will deliver me from this body of death? Again, John Newton said this in that letter, that we are so totally depraved is a truth which no one ever truly learned by being only taught it. Indeed, if we could receive and habitually maintain a right judgment of ourselves by what is plainly declared in Scripture, it would probably save us many a mournful hour. But experience is the Lord's school, and those who are taught by Him usually learn that they have no wisdom by the mistakes they make, and that they have no strength by the slips and falls they meet with. Every day draws forth some new corruption which before was little observed or at least discovers it in a stronger light than ever before. Thus by degrees they are weaned from leaning to any supposed wisdom, power, or goodness in themselves. They feel the truth of our Lord's words, without me you can do nothing. Number four, our struggle with remaining sin provides us with regular opportunities to appreciate and to celebrate the power and the preciousness of the gospel. It provides us with regular opportunities to appreciate and to celebrate the power and the preciousness of the gospel. Again, Ian DeGood says this, quote, when I am strong and living the Christian life well, I may be fond of the gospel as a concept, but when I see more clearly the ongoing depth of my sinfulness, then I cling to the gospel like a drowning drowning man to a life vest. I remember a roommate that I had in my first year of Bible college, and we were all in this uh, kind of a dormitory where we're kind of like bunk beds and there was like 20 guys in the same quarters and we had two bathrooms to share and so you kind of were in each other's life whether you wanted to be or not. And, and I remember coming in one morning uh, by this one little cubby where this one guy had his bunk bed and this was a, a black brother. He was a sweet soul. And uh, I just, as I was going to the bathroom that morning, I looked over and he was over there just kind of doing this. You know, and he would, he would beatbox, you know, he'd hit the wall and make beats on the wall, like whenever he was rejoicing in the Lord, that's just how he rejoiced in the Lord. And, uh, and, and so I could tell he was rejoicing in the Lord. And I said, hey man, what's up? He said, man, brother, he said, he said, I was just, Satan just was tempting me to think about something, you know, that I shouldn't think about. And, and I, I just had a moment of victory. 
And I'm just celebrating now. And he was excited that he had overcome Satan's attack in that moment. And uh, I've never forgot that, brother. And, and I think, you know, you know this to be true. Some of our sweetest times of fellowship with the Lord are when we're confessing our sin and even to the point of tears and just mourning over our sin and confessing our sin and we're broken before the Lord and, and, and we're, we're just overwhelmed with gratitude for his, his love and his compassion and his mercy and his, his forgiveness and we celebrate the gospel and we appreciate the gospel so much more. And again, don't go out this afternoon and say, well, I just want to appreciate the gospel, so I'm going to go sin so I can celebrate the gospel. No, then you're missing the point. Number five, just to get us back into reality here, (laughs) it exposes how heinous sin is and makes us hate it more. In other words, if somehow this sermon makes you love sin more, you've missed the whole point of the sermon. This sermon should cause you to hate sin more, right? Because of how heinous it is. And again, I don't need to read Psalm 51. I'm assuming you're very familiar with Psalm 51, where that was David's response to Nathan exposing the heinousness of David's sin when he said, you're the man I'm talking about who took this little lamb, the one and only little lamb that this guy had, and while you had a whole flock of sheep that you could have killed, right, and, and served supper for your guests, but no, you went and got this one guy's wife, right? You're the man. David, David was overwhelmed by how heinous the sin that was. Well, you tell me who that guy is, and I'm going to kill that guy. That, that was so wrong in David's mind. Well, he didn't realize until Nathan turned that whole story and said, you're the guy I'm talking about. But then, then praise God, we've got Psalm 51, I mean, I'm ashamed to have to confess to you, that's probably the most well-worn psalm in my Bible. And I've tread that path with David many a time when I've confessed sin to the Lord and needed a place to go to to help me walk my way back to the Lord. Just kind of follow David's steps. But, But as you know, David describes the heinousness of his own sin which led him to come clean before God. And we have that beautiful confession and that, that, uh, that really pathway or roadmap to repentance that, that God has left us in the pages of Scripture. The Puritans understood and, and, and articulated the, the wretched nature of sin. And, and, it, and again, they just did it in a uniquely profound way. They longed for sin to be rooted out of their lives. In fact, I'm sure many of you have the Valley of Vision, right? The collection of Puritan prayers. There's actually a section in there called penitence and deprecation. Leave it to the Puritans to come up with that, right? But they did. They wanted to mortify sin in their lives. And so um, uh, just for the sake of time, I'll only read one excerpt, but there's um, one called uh, Yet I Sin. That's one of my favorites, Um, The other one is the dark guest. Listen to this one. Oh, my crucified but never wholly mortified sinfulness. Oh, my lifelong damage and daily shame. Oh, my indwelling and besetting sins. Oh, the tormenting slavery of a sinful heart. Destroy, oh God, the dark guest within whose hidden presence makes my life a hell. Yet thou hast not left me here without grace. 
the cross still stands and meets my needs in the deepest straits of the soul. The memory of my great sins, my many temptations, my falls, bring afresh to my mind the remembrance of thy great help, of thy support from heaven, of the great grace that saved such a wretch as I am. There is no treasure so wonderful as the continuous experience of thy grace toward me, which alone can subdue the risings of sin within me. Give me more of it. So it exposes how heinous sin is and makes us hate it more. Number six, it exalts how glorious Christ is and endears him to us. It exalts how glorious Christ is and endears him to us. Again, John Newton in that letter said, the unchangeableness of the Lord's love and the riches of his mercy are likewise more illustrated by the multiplied pardons he bestows upon his people than if they never needed forgiveness at all. Hereby, the Lord Jesus Christ is more endeared to the soul after a long experience with their own deceitful hearts, after repeated proofs of their weakness, willfulness, ingratitude, insensibility, they find that none of these things can separate them from the love of Jesus. He becomes more and more precious to their souls. He says some of the clearest proofs that they have had of his excellence, that we have had of, God, of Christ's excellence, have been occasioned by the humiliating proofs that we have had of our own vileness. We would not have known so much of him if we had not known so much of ourselves. Again, Thomas Boston, why the Lord suffereth sin to remain in the, in the regenerate. He says, while we bear about a mortal body, this domestic tyrant cannot be altogether expelled because it is neither expedient for the glory of Christ nor for our salvation. For the glory of Christ is so much the more illustrious as his benefit is the better felt by us while that enemy doth indeed dwell in us. But by the grace and spirit of Christ uh, is so repressed but by the grace and spirit of Christ is so repressed and holding captive that it cannot domineer over us nor destroy us. We experience in us the grace of Christ so efficacious that by it he makes, uh, it, it, he makes us overcomers. Moreover, the glory of Christ becomes more illustrious while by reason of indwelling sin we in very deed feel we cannot be justified but by the perfect obedience of Christ which we apprehend by faith. It is also expedient for our salvation that the enemy abide in us till death, that we may have one to fight with perpetually and fighting by the grace of Christ may overcome. And then lastly, it increases our longing for heaven where we will enjoy eternal rest from sin. It increases our longing for heaven where we will enjoy eternal rest from sin. Thomas Watson, in his book, All Things for Good, said that, 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 that uh, the spiritual warfare um, that we face here on this earth should make us, quote, long for the day when we will be out of range of Satan's arrows. What a great picture that is. We're in, the, we're in a zone. We, we get picked off any time right now, but there's a day when we're going to be in heaven and his arrows aren't going to reach us there. Again, Ian DeGood said this, nothing gives us a greater desire for the completion of the Spirit's work on the last day and our full deliverance from the battle against this body of death than those times when the conflict with the remaining sin in our lives is at its fiercest. Thomas Boston 
None can prize rest so much as they who have been sore toiled and have come out of the greatest tribulations. I think uh, I may be allowed to say that a child of God, having come to his journey's end after many ups and downs, falls and rises, having went through the troublesome sea of this world and being set safe ashore after many dangers of shipwreck in a longsome voyage, will have the praises of free grace in his mouth sounding more loudly and will sing the song of the Lamb in a more elegant elevated strain and higher notes than if he had never been in danger through the whole of his course. As I mentioned at the start, Newton is best known for his classic hymn, Amazing Grace. He also penned a more obscure but not as well-known hymn called, I Ask the Lord That I May Grow. You may have heard of this, but let me just close by reading it. It's a profound song, how God afflicts us in order to grow us and mature us in our relationship with him. This is how it goes. I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. Twas he who taught me thus to pray, and he, I trust, has answered prayer, but it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I hope that in some favored hour, at once he'd answer my request and by his love's constraining power, subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more with his own hand, he seemed intent to aggravate my woe, crossed all my fair designs I schemed, humbled my heart and laid me low. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied, I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou might seek thy all in me. And so I think Newton just brilliantly described the irony of the sanctification process. How God, rather than subduing our sin, allows sin to assault our souls so we see and feel how sinful we really are and how earnestly we need to seek him in our ongoing battle against indwelling and remaining sin. And even though at times it seems like God is just going out of his way to make our lives difficult, He's actually using our painful internal struggles with sin and temptation to deliver us from selfishness and and pride and and, and independence and, and break us from trying to find our joy in earthly things so that we would ultimately seek our happiness in him and him alone. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we know you hate sin. And you love us. And so based on that, we have to believe there's some reason why you have left us to struggle with remaining sin. And we know one of those reasons is that we would long more for heaven when we'll be free from sin, finally and ultimately. But in the meantime, I pray that we would draw comfort and and hope from knowing that, that this ongoing struggle brings you glory, it accomplishes good in us, 
I pray that it would cause us to hate sin more, to love you more, and to treasure the gospel more. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.